Hey everyone, I wanted to re-release this April 2019 episode of the podcast that examines the personal and political history of Aung San Suu Kyi. Up until about 24 hours ago, she was the de facto leader of Myanmar. But now she and other civilian leaders are under arrest after the military staged a coup. This is an evolving situation, but what we know so far is that the military objected to results of recent elections in which Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, won overwhelmingly. The military claimed massive voter fraud and has ousted the country's civilian leadership from power. The Burmese military and Aung San Suu Kyi have been in tension with each other for decades. Starting in 1990, she spent nearly 15 years under house arrest after the military annulled elections in which she became prime minister. The United States and most Western countries enacted sanctions and cut diplomatic ties with the military junta. Now, apparently, the military has once again ousted her and her party from power. Given these recent events, I thought it would be a good idea to revisit my 2019 conversation with Ben Rhodes, who served as Barack Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor and helped manage the opening of diplomatic relations between the United States and Myanmar. This opening was predicated on Myanmar's return to democracy and successful elections, which again saw Aung San Suu Kyi and her party return to power. When Ben Rhodes and I spoke in 2019, Aung San Suu Kyi's reputation as a human rights icon was irrevocably damaged by her acquiescence to a genocide committed against the ethnic Rohingya minority. In this conversation, we discuss Aung San Suu Kyi's personal history, Myanmar's transition to democracy during the Obama administration, and how Aung San Suu Kyi ultimately fell from grace as a revered figure in the United States and much of the West. And I am re-releasing this episode because I do think it provides some helpful context for understanding these very recent events in Myanmar. So here is that episode again, originally titled, What Happened to Aung San Suu Kyi? When Ben Rhodes first met Aung San Suu Kyi, she exuded all the traits that made her such an international icon for human rights and democracy. The year was 2012. Ben Rhodes, who was the Deputy National Security Advisor, was accompanying his boss Barack Obama in an historic visit to Myanmar. As he puts it, this meeting was the high-water mark for her moral authority. There is a hopefulness surrounding her, he says. Now, seven years later, she's been stripped of many international accolades, honors, and prizes. At issue is the fact that as the most powerful civilian leader in Myanmar, she's refused to intervene against or even publicly condemn a genocide committed by the government against a religious and ethnic minority. 
Some 700,000 ethnic Rohingya have fled Myanmar amid what a UN official has called a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. All the while, Aung San Suu Kyi was silent. So what happened to Aung San Suu Kyi? How is it that a Nobel Peace Prize winner who spent decades under house arrest in an elegant pursuit of democracy and justice in Myanmar has fallen so far from grace? And was the international community, including the Obama administration, wrong about her all along? Ben Rhodes grapples with these questions in a new piece in The Atlantic that combines some of his own self-reflection with fresh reporting, and he's on the podcast today to discuss the piece. We kick off setting the historic context for Aung San Suu Kyi's rise to prominence and the circumstances of her persecution and house arrest. We then have a longer conversation about the causes and implications of her becoming a bystander to genocide. And now here is my conversation with Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor, co-host of Pod Save the World, and author of The World as It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, Aung San Suu Kyi is really the defining figure of Burmese politics over the last several decades. She's the daughter of Aung San, who was essentially the George Washington of Burma, the man who led Burma to independence from Britain. He was assassinated, though, right before independence in 1947, when Aung San Suu Kyi was only two years old. And she ended up growing up uh, outside of the country in India, uh, where her mother was ambassador then she moved to the UK, married a man named Michael Aris, a British citizen, and she really entered politics by accident. Uh, in 1988, 89, her mother had a stroke and was very unwell, and Aung San Suu Kyi returned to Burma to be with her at the exact moment that student protests were rocking the country, protests against a very brutal and reclusive military government. And Aung San Suu Kyi entered politics at that moment. And in her first major speech, she addressed half a million people in the center of uh, Yangon, then the capital, and became the leader of the opposition. And there was actually an election in Burma in 1989, which she won overwhelmingly. But from that point on, the junta decided to put her in prison, uh, largely under house arrest in her home in Yangon. And she became kind of a Mandela-like figure in Burma. She was the symbol of the opposition. She was incredibly courageous. She was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. She was an advocate, fierce advocate for human rights. Uh, and for the next two decades, she spent most of her time under house arrest. And after she was released, um, when the Bur Burmese junta started to open up in mm -hmm. uh, 2011, she re-entered politics in the country. And, and you know, it's probably worth emphasizing that, you know, 
her time under house arrest and the events leading up to her, uh, her house arrest, I mean, she just displayed just profound personal courage uh, and was really like this inspirational figure, not of in, not only in Myanmar, Burma, but, but around the world. Yeah. In the piece, I really wanted to take people back to just the level of sacrifice because, you know, it's easy to think, well, she was under house arrest, but it was beyond that. She, uh, when she was campaigning in 1989, there was a famous incident where literally a firing squad of soldiers faced her and told her to turn around and she refused and kept walking towards them and they were given the order to shoot and she kept walking and these men could not pull the trigger. They could not take the life of the daughter of the national hero. In house arrest, she was often under pretty extreme isolation, you know, cut off from the world. Uh, during one of her releases from house arrest, a mob of men was released around her vehicle, essentially. And there was essentially a riot where dozens of people were killed and she somehow escaped. So she was subjected to a, a lot of trauma um, and really had to demonstrate enormous courage. Her, her husband died, for instance, while she was under house arrest. And the military said, we'll let you go. You can go back to the UK. You can be with your husband. Obviously, they weren't going to let her back into the country. And she chose to stay in her country under house arrest rather than be freed uh, to go back to the West. Uh, and she wrote with a lot of passion about human rights um, in a series of essays that uh, were welcomed, embraced by the likes of Vaclav Havel and Desmond Tutu. So she really became, after Mandela, this icon of resistance on behalf of democracy and human rights. She really sacrificed personally. She, she earned her reputation. Um, as a human rights icon and as essentially, you know, the repository of the hopes of the Burmese people who were suffering under really extreme dictatorship uh, until recent years. So it seems one key inflection point in her own political career and, and political evolution was the election of Barack Obama and his inauguration in 2009. Uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, being freezing cold at the mall during that uh, inaugural address and, and hearing that line, you know, we'll extend our arm if you unclench your fist. And I sort of thought immediately uh, when I heard that of the situation in Burma, which at the time had sort of been taking baby steps, it seemed, towards, towards democratization and liberalization. Can you sort of take, I don't know, maybe you wrote that line, um, but can you take me back a little bit to those early years of the Obama administration, what diplomacy towards Myanmar looked like? Yeah, you know, Obama had campaigned on a return to diplomacy. And, you know, when he said that line, uh, we will extend a hand if you unclench your fist, we had a few countries in mind. Um, one of them was Iran. One of them was Cuba. And one of them was certainly Burma. And what we did in 2009, 2010, is we had an envoy, Derek Mitchell, uh, who ended up being our ambassador, who I, I interviewed extensively for the piece. And Derek began to explore whether or not the Burmese military was prepared to open up and begin to change uh, its approach to governance and to the rest of the world. And over the course of 2009, 2010, we saw some initial signs that they were prepared to move in a different direction. And, you know, I think for a lot of reasons. Part of it was the international pressure they were under on behalf of Aung San Suu Kyi, but frankly, that had gone on for two decades. There were some other circumstances. There was a catastrophic cyclone that killed tens of thousands of people in Burma that kind of revealed the ineptitude of the government. There was the example- yeah, it was Nargis, right, in 2008? 
Yeah. Yes, yeah, so people may remember uh, that the Burmese refused foreign assistance and it led to a humanitarian disaster and a lot of pressure in the country. Their neighbors in Southeast Asia, countries like Vietnam and Singapore, obviously developing very rapidly, enjoying much higher standards of living. And the Burmese are seeing this and thinking, well, maybe that's a better way to go. Uh, China had enormous influence in, in Burma and there started to be public protests of large Chinese infrastructure projects that were displacing Burmese. So there were a bunch of factors kind of nudging this government in the direction of openness. And then in 2011, um, a new president, Thane Sane, from the military, indicates that he wants to open things up and he starts to release political prisoners and he starts to allow for more media freedoms. And he allows Burmese who essentially exiled from the country to return. And he agrees to release Aung San Suu Kyi from house arrest. And so at that moment where they had taken steps to open up, the Obama administration reciprocated and we appointed Derek Mitchell ambassador, the first ambassador to Burma since the 1989 election. We started to relieve some of the sanctions imposed on Burma and essentially you know, tried to welcome them in from the cold, as it were. And when was the first time you met uh, Aung San Suu Kyi personally? So the first time I met Aung San Suu Kyi was in 2012. Barack Obama traveled to Burma. It was shortly after his reelection. And it was really extraordinary because we landed at the airport in Burma and it was really a dilapidated, you know, backward kind of infrastructure at the airport. And we start to come into this city and, you know, first there are all these school children in uniforms welcoming us. And it felt kind of quasi authoritarian to have all these identically addressed people waving at us. But then once we got through that, there were these crowds of tens of thousands of people. I've, I've never seen crowds like that lining this route. And the reason that was so striking is there was a law in Burma on the books until shortly before that visit where you couldn't even gather in a group of more than five people. Uh, without a permit, essentially. And so you had this sense of a country literally changing before your eyes. And we went to Aung San Suu Kyi's house, the very same place where she'd been under house arrest. So very powerful to walk into a house where you know this person you're meeting with, this older Burmese woman, had been detained for all these years. And I described, you know, it was kind of like the high water mark. You know, Aung San Suu Kyi's at the height of her moral authority. Barack Obama has just been reelected. Hillary Clinton is with us. She's at the height of her popularity. And there was a sense of hopefulness. And Aung San Suu Kyi had re-entered parliament. She'd won a, a by-election to the Burmese parliament. Uh, and she was talking about learning kind of the intricacies of parliamentary maneuvers and how to make democracy that she'd written about all these years real through institutions like the Burmese parliament. Um, and, you know, I, I'll never forget, we, we leave this kind of hopeful meeting and I'm in the car with Obama and, you know, he says to me, you know, I used to be the face on the poster and your image always ends up fading. And what he was saying essentially is when you're under politics, it's hard to maintain your status as an icon. And and Su Chi had said to us in that meeting, you know, I'm not an icon, I'm a politician. And that's how she wanted to be considered. And so, you know, even as it was a very hopeful moment, uh, there was a, a bit of a sense of uh, foreshadowing of some of the things that happened. And and then it was in September 2012 when she came to the United States, right? 
Yes, she came yeah, uh, yeah. on kind of a victory lap to the United States. Yeah. And, you know, she had huge support from Congress. Mitch McConnell had championed her cause, mm-hmm. among others. And she was, I think, awarded, you know, the Congressional Gold Medal. And she traveled around the country and thanked different constituencies who supported her, the Burmese diaspora. And then Obama wel- welcomes her in the White House. And it was it was almost like, you know, a, a smaller version of when Mandela made his first trip to the U.S. Here's this person that we'd supported Republican and Democrat for decades, you know, finally free entering politics. Uh, it was a very hopeful moment. So, I mean, I remember her at the United Nations. I, I was at a press conference. It was like some sort of press availability. She was with with uh, then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. It was part of that trip. I can't remember if it was before she was at the White House or or after. But the one thing I remember from that press encounter, from that press availability, was that she refused to say Rohingya. Uh, and, and that, to me, signaled that there was something sort of profoundly um, – dark that might be lurking under the surface of this sort of icon. Uh, I'm wondering if what was the moment uh, when you realized that the Rohingya issue might be something in which her moral authority would be undermined in some way? Well, in that 2012 visit with Obama, the Rohingya issue was very prominent because um, earlier that year, there had been some violence in Rakhine State where the Rohingya live. And the Rohingya are a Muslim minority in Rakhine State, which is along the border of Bangladesh. Um, And they're also South Asian by descent. And in Burma, both Muslims and people of South Asian descent, you know, are often discriminated against. There have been previous instances in Burmese history where the Rohingya were targeted uh, with violence uh, and driven across the border into Bangladesh in large numbers. A law had been passed in the 80s, essentially denying them citizenship. Um, and so they were, you know, a persecuted minority. And in 2012, some violence had broken out because there was an alleged rape of a Buddhist woman by a Rohingya Muslim. And the reprisal violence drove tens of thousands of people into camps. And so when Obama sat down with her, he said, look, you know, we, we need to work to resolve this issue. We need you to use your moral authority. And what was interesting is in private, you know, she would say she would say the word Rohingya. She acknowledged the difficulties they faced and she would pledge that, you know, the human rights of all people in Burma needed to be respected, including Rohingya. But, you know, she would indicate that this was a very complicated issue, that the vast majority of Burmese were very prejudiced against the Rohingya, that, you know, it was a delicate issue, that if she made this central to her uh, agenda, essentially, the military would use that against her. And that, you know, essentially her plan was to try to democratize the country and put herself in a position where, you know, she'd be more empowered to try to resolve issues like the Rohingya crisis. So while there was a warning sign that she didn't want to spend, you know, her political capital, essentially, on this issue, she did privately kind of say the right things. And so uh, it was more a question of how do we simultaneously try to work as the U.S. government to support the democratization of Burma, which involves, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi's agenda, because frankly, in any democratic election, we knew she would win, while also trying to help this persecuted minority inside the country that frankly does not have 
any popular support uh, in, in the country. So it was always a kind of very complex tightrope to walk. Yeah. And, and, you know, it seems, you know, by the time of her 2015, you know, landslide victory of, of her um, NLD party, um, as you sort of, sort of elicit in the piece, like it seems like the central tension seems to be her desire to, as you said earlier, sort of act like a politician and seek to advance democracy and work with the military to secure certain constitutional reforms that will, you know, tighten her hold on power. But um, focusing on the Rohingya issue, which at that point in 2015 had not yet become like a full-fledged genocide or, or ethnic cleansing, um, was, yeah, as you said, like not something worth spending the political capital on. There was not like a lot of domestic political upside uh, to her to to sort of make a big deal out of discrimination against this beleaguered minority. Yeah. You know, and the Rohingya is one of these issues where when you're in government, you spend a tremendous amount of effort just to prevent it from getting worse. You know, so we would spend a lot of time with the, the military government before Aung San Suu was elected on things like, can we get humanitarian access for NGOs to the Rohingya? Yeah. And yeah. can you start to resettle them? She gets elected, you know, and I would raise these issues with her. Um, and, you know, she would say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to democratize the country. That involves reforming the constitution of the country because there are constitutional amendments in Burma to this day that prevent Aung San Suu Kyi from being president of the country. It's a strange amendment that says if you have foreign born children, you can't be president clearly targeted at her. There is uh, no civilian control of the military in the country. So even though she got elected, was named to the state councilor position, which is not president, but it's essentially like a de facto prime minister, that position still doesn't control the military or the Ministry of Border Affairs or Home Affairs. So essentially the ministry is responsible for dealing with the Rohingya crisis. Um, so she, her argument was always, I need to finish the job of reforming this constitution before I can do anything about the Rohingya. Our argument was you have moral authority as the most popular politician in the country. You should be speaking out on this. And she was always reluctant to do so. Frankly, her answer after she became state counselor in 2016, she appointed Kofi Annan, the former UN secretary general, to chair a commission that would look into this issue and make recommendations. Um, and so essentially what she was saying is, uh, because this is too complicated for Burmese politicians to take on, we're going to outsource this problem to this international commission, and then I'll commit to implementing the recommendations of that commission. So that was uh, essentially her, you know, way to to be dealing with the problem without dealing with it herself. Yeah. But but then of course the the Annan Commission, you know, said that Rohingya should be granted full citizenship rights, and she did not implement uh, that that uh, conclusion. Yeah, well, two things happened. So in late 2016, in October of 2016, violence broke out again. And this time, uh, a, a new group, a group of Rohingya, the Rohingya Salvation Army, attacked uh, a bunch of Burmese police outposts, uh, killed several people. And the response was way disproportionate. You know, they displaced tens of thousands of people. And so this, you know, this problem that had been festering had begun to boil over. It settled down again. And then what happened is in the summer of 2017, the Anon Commission issues its recommendations, which are in line with international views that the Rohingya need to be granted citizenship to be protected. And around the same time, a day or two later, there's another attack from 
this Rohingya insurgent group that kills more Burmese police. And this time, it felt like the military had a plan to ethnically cleanse the Rohingya. And that's when you had these attacks, these atrocities, burning of villages, sexual violence, and you have hundreds of thousands, 700,000 Rohingya driven across the border into Bangladesh. While that was happening, she said nothing, Um, you know, or she deflected the issue or she said or denied it or denied it or said there's violence on both sides. I mean, real abdication of any moral responsibility or political responsibility for this. So Uh, and that's what I think drew this kind of international condemnation that has come down on it. So, I mean, you're out of government at this point when, you know, what is probably a genocide unfolded um, in in uh, that part of, of Myanmar when you had like 700,000 refugees go over the border to Bangladesh. Uh, you know, like what's going through your mind at, at that point as someone who's directly negotiated with her, as someone who has implored her to do the opposite of what she is doing? Well, you know, I, I was anguished about you think, you know, could we have done anything differently to resolve this issue? I also thought, you know, if I was in government, what would I be doing? You know, would we, you know, how would we be bringing this to the UN? How would we be mobilizing, you know, the International Criminal Court? How would we be trying to mobilize other Southeast Asian countries to put pressure on Burma? But then with her, I just felt a sense of profound disappointment because, you know, as I kind of detail in the piece, there are always these two Aung San Suu Kyi's. You know, there was Aung San Suu Kyi who spoke about democracy and human rights and bringing people together. And I described my last meeting with her in government. She's talking about wanting to set up dialogue between Rohingya women and Rakhine Buddhist women. And and then there's this other Aung San Suu Kyi who is entirely focused on her own power. You know, how can I consolidate power? How can I get elected? How can I reform the constitution, become president? And, and those two things weren't contradictory in some ways for a time because democracy in Burma would lead to her being in power. But what happened in 2017 is you saw her essentially choose between those two identities. Am I the person who cares about human rights or am I the person who cares about my political position in the country? And it was incredibly, obviously, disappointing to see her, you know, choose her own power. She wrote famously that fear is, you know, that the ultimate freedom is freedom from fear and that people who... Uh, don't have power, fear the scourge of power, and people who do have power are corrupted and don't want to give it up. And and it was like watching her transform into the very thing that she'd argued against, which is a politician who wouldn't take a moral stand if it meant potentially compromising her her politics. And, and you mentioned this earlier, the uh, that you know there is this general sort of discrimination against the Rohingya in the country. I mean, is it possible that Suchi herself is just a racist? Uh, that she holds just like deeply, you know, bigoted racist views against the Rohingya and is sort of fine to, you know, let them be extinguished. Exterminated, pardon me. Yeah. I mean I I think, you know, the way I think about this is She's not in charge of these operations. So it is true, to be fair to her, that she cannot order or terminate these military operations. She doesn't have control over the military. And I think that if she was, I don't think she would perpetrate an ethnic cleansing. Um, On the other hand, she clearly is prejudiced enough 
that she sees the Rohingya as kind of less Burmese than other people in Burma, that the majority ethnic group is Burman and the majority religious group is Buddhist and Aung San Suu Kyi is Burman and Buddhist. I, I have to think that she would be acting differently if this was being done to Burmans or to Buddhists. So um, I think she does harbor some of the prejudice that you see uh, throughout the country uh, from the Buddhist majority towards the Muslim minority and the Rohingya in particular. I also think, you know, and I mentioned this at the end of the piece, she's, and this is complicated, but, you know, she's a somewhat traumatized individual herself. I mean, it's hard to, for us to know what 20 years of extreme isolation and house arrest and threats does to somebody and, and how much that compromises your ability to empathize with people who are different. And, in the last piece that was fascinating to me, I went back and talked to lots of people in Burma about what had happened. And one of the things that's happened in Burma in the last four years is an explosion of social media. And a country that had almost zero internet penetration went to 95% internet penetration in a few years. And the entire internet experience is through Facebook because people have phones, they don't have computers. And what you've seen is an explosion of hate speech against Rohingya. And that's what's being shared online. And and so, you know, as in a lot of places, the antibodies against prejudice are breaking down and politics and social media is amplifying prejudice and minimizing, you know, a sense of common humanity. And, and so the tragedy of Burma is what they're dealing with is both something that is unique to Burma, which is this challenge of the Rohingya. But there's also this kind of global trend of nationalism and religious identity and social media supercharging that. And and you just see this country that that can't manage the, those dark forces. Lastly, are there any broader foreign policy lessons you could draw from from this experience, from your own experience in, in sort of diplomacy with North, with pardon me, with Myanmar? Um, that sort of, in retrospect, what could you have done? What could the administration have done to have you know prevented the situation that led to a genocide? Well, I think there's. Um, trends that are really important for people to see that explain some of what's happened in Burma. You know, one I mentioned is social media. Another I mentioned is this kind of rising nationalism. Uh, the Burmese National Security Advisor said to me quite candidly, yeah, this would be a lot easier in the 1990s when <laughs> democracy was spreading. Now, Burma is in a neighborhood where that is not the trend. And I think the role of China is critically important here because China is, you know, their large neighbor to the north. China is, frankly, through its Belt Road Initiative, building infrastructure, including pipelines that go right through Rakhine State, where the Rohingya live. China does not care about human rights. China is actually detaining a million uh, mainly Muslim Uyghurs in Western China. And the Burmese know that even if the West ostracizes them over the Rohingya, they can turn to the Chinese. And they said that to me. They said, well, we'll just turn to China. And um, so I think we have to see this complicated trend where there are a lot of incentives for a country like Burma to not do the right thing. What does that mean for us? And, and how do I look back on this then? I, I do think what this means is that the international community needs more tools to deal with crises like this when local governments aren't going to take certain steps. And frankly, we're not going to intervene militarily uh, in Burma on behalf of the Rohingya. Uh, I think, you know, accountability through the International Criminal Court against perpetrators of atrocities is important. I think spotlighting uh, instances like this and putting Burma on the diplomatic defensive at the United Nations 
or in ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, is a tool that can at least moderate their behavior and, and create a sense of diplomatic isolation for them. I'd talk about the debate about sanctions, which is incredibly complicated. And again, to, to be fair and lift up critics of Obama, we got a lot of criticism for lifting sanctions on Burma um, and in and, 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 and advance of essentially uh, what became the ethnic cleansing in 2017. Um, I, you know, I kind of come to think that in a country like Burma, the bad actors in the military are the best sanctions evaders as it is. Um, and China is a bit of a hedge against sanctions because countries can kind of turn to China if they feel like they're being cut off from the U.S. But, you know, you have to debate the tool of sanctions. And I think there's a role for sanctions that are targeted um, at bad actors. Um, but to me, I think mobilizing international diplomatic pressure, attention, um, accountability is really all we have to fight back against these trends in the long run. You know, I, I think addressing some of these you know, root issues, how is social media operate globally um, so that it's not a tool of spreading hate speech? Um, how are we empowering not just Aung San Suu Kyi? I think one lesson of this is we can't put all our eggs in one basket. We can't say democracy is, is indistinguishable from Aung San Suu Kyi in a country like Burma. But how are we strengthening political parties and institutions in the country has to be a part of this. So. Um, you know, I wanted to both draw out through the story of Aung San Suu Kyi how, you know, essentially it's tempting to view other countries through the prism of a single icon like that. But, you know, you have to see the whole picture as well. Uh, well, Ben, thank you so much for your time. It was a very thoughtful piece in The Atlantic. I'll, I'll point everyone to it. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you all for listening. I hope you found this re-release of an episode published about a year and a half ago useful. Uh, let me know what you think. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or just hitting me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. I always love to hear from you. And uh, you know, do let me know if uh, you found this re-release useful in some way or another. I haven't done this very often, but this podcast has been going on for about eight years now, and so there are sometimes older episodes that suddenly become very relevant, and I immediately thought of this one when I saw news of the coup in Myanmar. So let me know what you think. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.